Good morning. It's good to be invited back up here again. Good to know that I wasn't a heretic. I preached my last message and I wasn't found to be one. So um, pray for me, though. I'm quite tired last night. I was uh, finishing up the sermon last night, um, yesterday, and um, I was at Starbucks. And seriously, whatever they put in their iced coffee, I I only got two hours of sleep last night. And uh, I was... uh, I tried to work it off, get to, to go to bed, couldn't go to bed, went to Walmart, picked up some hygiene material, and um, went back home, still couldn't fall asleep. I got to bed around 3.15, and so um, I used that time wisely by the grace of God. He put to remembrance my brother, and I just started praying for my brother. So um, uh, praise God, even uh, in our sleepless nights, he causes us to do his work, even through the work of prayer. Um, uh, so with that... If you've ever been to Great America, the theme park, and you're into thrill rides, then you've probably or most likely been on the Top Gun ride, which goes on numerous inverts and can travel at speeds of up to 50 miles per hour. Now, can you imagine somebody going on that ride and and not securing themselves with the safety bar or the seatbelt and choosing rather to just hold on that ride and, and thinking that by their own strength, they're going to make it through that ride. They, rather than trusting in the security that's provided for them, they choose ra- rather to, to trust in themselves, to secure themselves with their own feeble strength, knowing that, that's just, that's insanity for us to, if somebody were to do that. But sadly enough, some believers hold on to their salvation as some would to a roller coaster ride, holding on with their own strength rather than trusting in the security of the sovereign grace, mercy, and power of God. I've spoken to many believers, and I myself in my uh, earlier days and in, in my walk with the Lord, um, and they, they feel like they've got to hold on, that if they don't hold on tight enough or if they're not faithful enough, obedient enough, or work hard enough, that they'll fall away from grace and lose their salvation. Today, we're going to be looking at a passage in Romans. It's a glorious passage that I believe God intends for his people to find security in. Romans 8 is intended, I believe, for the purpose of comforting God's people and giving them security. Filled with so many verses that God's people have loved for centuries. You've got verses like Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And in closing this chapter, Paul, he says, stating that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But today, I want to focus our attention on a specific passage located in verses 28 through 30 that speaks of the eternal plan or the purpose of God. I want to point our attention to the glorious work of God in which he decreed from eternity past. And by decree, what I mean is what the Westminster Confession states as God's eternal purpose according to the counsel of his own will whereby he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now the depths of the verses that we're going to be covering this morning, it's just too deep for me to cover all the, in deep detail, the many doctrines contained within this passage. It's not my intention to explain away these doctrines in an exhaustive way. 
but I do want to focus our attention on the heart of these three verses, which I think these doctrines serve to magnify. Um, I think that uh, most importantly, these doctrines are intended to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ and point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, with that, let us pray. Father, I just want to thank you for this morning. God, you are so gracious, Lord, that you would use such a sinful one as I, such a crooked stick, such a sinful, wretched man as I to proclaim your gospel. I am amazed, Father, not by strength nor by might, but by your spirit, Father, I pray that you would fall upon the hearts of people here this morning. God, as your word is preached, Father, may your spirit take take it and, and land it in the hearts of people, Father. God, as the two disciples walked on the road to Emmaus, Father, and Christ Jesus opened the scriptures to them, their hearts burned, Father. Lord, I pray that you would do the same this morning, that your people's hearts would burn as your scriptures is preached, Father. May you be exalted. May the Lord Jesus Christ be high and lifted up this morning, Father. Bless the preaching and the teaching of your word, God, by your spirit. Make it effective, God. Be exalted, O Lord Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, and it reads, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, if you wanted to outline these three verses, you can have three headings. Verse 29 could be the promise of God. Verse, uh, verse 28 and verse 29 the second heading would be the purpose of God. Verse 30 can be the plan or the procedure whereby which God accomplishes the purpose of his promise. Verse 28 ranks up there as one of the most treasured verses that believers have memorized and treasured for hundreds of years. It contains a magnificent promise that has brought comfort to many suffering Christians. Paul here speaks with the language of certainty and not one of doubt. Sadly, some believers fail to live in security because they doubt that God is absolutely sovereign over everything. They doubt that the God of the universe, the God that upholds the universe by the power of his word is not in absolute control of every step that they take and every molecule, every star, every planet in the universe. They don't think that he is in absolute control, that they believe that somehow something is outside of his reins. They have this mentality, as John MacArthur puts it, of thinking that although God will not fail, man might. Most believers who fail to trust in God's absolute sovereignty in all of creation, especially in their salvation, have a man-sized view of God and have a God-sized view of man. They view God as impotent and unable to produce that which he intended or purposed and resist rather to view God as he has revealed himself in scriptures, as omnipotent. They refuse to take God as his, at his word where he says that none can stay his hand. The same God who says of himself, my purpose will stand and I will do all 
that I please. Oh, that we would forsake this morning the lie that God is not absolutely in control of everything in the universe, including our salvation. May we find comfort in the absolute sovereignty of God and who he is to us this morning. Some believers dare not tread or embark on discussing certain truths of the Bible, but I agree with John Stott when he says that it is just as foolish to claim that which we do not know as it is to confess to know what we do know. So I, I, I do admit that there are many secrets of God that belong exclusively to him. But there are many beautiful truths as well that God has revealed to his, uh, in his word and that I believe God intended for his people to discuss and feed upon with their hearts in order that our hearts would savor and relish and enjoy God and, and that we would break out in doxology and in worship of who he is for us. Today, you've already heard me say numerous times, sovereign, absolute, um, many words that are familiar to us in uh, in the Reformed faith or Calvinism, but today it's not my intention to preach Calvinism. It's not my intention to, pre- uh, to preach doctrine or the Reformed faith. My intention today is to preach Christ, the sufficiency of who he is, and that your hearts would enjoy and savor the beauty of the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. Just like my first sermon, I lost my spot again. okay okay so paul here explains some things in which we can know and therefore he speaks with certainty hence why he says we know paul states that all things work together for our good now although the esv has the most natural way of translating this verse i don't think that it's wrong to go with the nas translation which, uh, which renders it that um, the verse as God being the one that causes all things to work together for good. Now, my reason is because all things don't just naturally weave and work themselves out together as if creation itself was working independently outside of God's sovereign rule. Next, we have two descriptions of the recipients of the promise that all things work together for. It is for the first, those who love God. Loving God here shouldn't be seen, as Thomas Schreiner put, Schreiner put it, as a condition, but rather a way of denoting believers. In other words, they are one of the marks of a true believer. This isn't the usual way in which uh, we're classified in the, in the Word of God, but God's Word says this to be true. Um, Paul speaks of believers loving God in other places such as 1 Corinthians 2.9, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagines what God has prepared for those who love him. Ephesians 6.24, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now this love that the believer has for God is the consequence of God's grace, mercy, and love lavished upon them. And this love, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. See, it's, it's as, as, as the believer meditates upon the grace of God, the, the mercy of God, and the, the, the suffering of Christ and, and all that he's done as revealed to us in scriptures, we cannot be- respond in loving worship of the God who forgave us and the God who gave himself for us. It is a response to grace. Our love for God 
is not anything that merits grace. Again, it is a response to the grace given to the believer. Second, the recipients of grace are those who have been called. The calling here is not the general call of the gospel, but what theologians refer to as the effectual call. This call is different from the general call of the gospel or the general proclamation of the gospel when it is preached. You can preach to your neighbors, your friends, but it's not always effectual. Not all come to Christ. There's uh, the, the difference between the effectual call is that it produces faith. It produces repentance in the believer because the spirit is at work with the proclamation of the gospel and, it respo- and in response, those that have had their hearts open turn from sin, repent of sin, and in faith, turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Again, this call is not for everyone because not all repent from sin and turn by faith to Christ. The the result of the effectual call will produce justification. As evident in verse 30, where Paul says that those whom he, speaking of God, those whom he called, he also justified. You see, there is a consequence to the call when the gospel is preached, when the, when the person is called. Uh, Paul here says that there, there is an effect of justification that is a result of it. Now, let's turn back for a second to the promise Paul is speaking of here. He says that, uh, you know, many believers today actually have a mister, misunderstanding of what the good is that all things are working together for. I think that many of you, just as I, have taken this to mean that all things work together with our temporal or material needs as the ultimate end. For example, some might apply this verse to, um, and say to themselves, Lord, it's difficult in my life right now. Father, it's, it's so difficult right now. My kids are out of control and my family's dysfunctional. And, but Lord, I know that you're working all things out together in order that it'll, it'll get better. Or Lord, I don't know where to apply for work right now. I don't know. I can't find a job. So Lord, uh, I, just, I just don't know. Or maybe you're single and um, you're struggling with your singleness and you're, think, you're thinking to yourself, Lord, I know that all things are working together for, for me. And that one day I will get married. You're working through all this. Now, although the Lord is indeed at work in our lives to meet certain needs, these needs are not what Paul is speaking of in this verse as the good in which all things are working together for. And the purpose, I believe, is defined clearly for us in verse 29. Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The purpose of salvation is twofold. Paul begins here with the secondary purpose, that the believers be conformed to the image of his son. And then in the latter part of the verse, Paul states the ultimate purpose of God, that Christ would be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, the image of God, or the, being conformed into the image of his son, is also twofold. First, I'd like to explain the physical bodies as, um, as being conformed into the image of Christ. 
um, our physical bodies will become like his resurrected bodies. No longer will we have bodies that decay, rot away, but we will have perfected bodies that will be glorified as his. Philippians 3.21 states that God will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Romans 6.5 says that for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So this physical resurrection or the, the physical image of, of Christ, we will also have this physical resurrected bodies. And this is speaking of, course, future glory, future resurrection, and not yet. It is still to come. So believer, your body may be decaying right now, but there is coming a day where death and decay will be no more. Cancer, sickness, and disease will be a foreign and alien concept to us. Therefore, if you're going bald like me, you can relax. You'll get your hair back. <laughs> second, is, <laughs> second is the spiritual image of Christ. Now, what does this mean? Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. With the use of this term image, Paul, I believe, is alluding to the Genesis accounts where Adam was said to be made in the image of God. Adam, having been made in the image of God, was given a mandate to multiply the image of God through his posterity or all who would come after him. God's intention with Adam and his children was that they would mirror his image throughout all the earth. He also was to rule and subdue the created world and have dominion over every living creatures in the sea and in the air and on the land. So Paul here is speaking of the image theme and he's wanting us to recollect the image theme and some of you might be asking, why is Paul doing this? Why is Paul wanting us to think back on the Genesis accounts with Adam? I believe this theme is brought back up because he wants us to realize that God's purpose to fill the earth with God-like images of himself in which the first Adam failed to do is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the true Adam. Humanity since the fall, rather than radiating the perfect image of God, has radiated an imperfect and deformed image of God. Romans 1.23 says, uh, gives us a reason for why the world is in the condition that it's in. Rather than radiating God's perfect image, we've exchanged it for other images re resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We've looked to transform ourselves into our fallen, deformed image of God rather than the true image of God. Just flip through the television and in just three minutes of watching commercials, we're bombarded with the world telling us what, uh, what will make us happy. If we had whiter teeth, if we were slimmer, if we were this or we, if we were that, you might not realize it, but the world is preaching to you every day and calling you to be transformed. That's why we find ourselves wanting to be like the famous people of the world. 
I want to be like him. I want to be like her. And we want to be transformed. But praise God that he has, in Christ, reversed the curse. And that what he has purposed to make, or what he has purposed to do in the garden with Adam, will ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The world will one day be swarming with legions of Christ-like humanity. Next, we have the ultimate purpose, that Christ would be the firstborn among many brothers. What does it mean that Christ is the firstborn? It doesn't mean that Christ was the first one born, as if he was a created being, Colossians 1.18 says that Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead and in everything. That in everything, he might be preeminent. I believe the firstborn here, the term that Paul is using as firstborn is right there. Explained to us by Paul that he might be preeminent, that he might have first place. God loves his son, Jesus Christ, so much that he wants him to have first place over everything in all of creation, over everything in all of creation, and rightly so. For who else is worthy of such an honor? Who else is worthy of such an honor? To whom can we compare the Lord Jesus Christ to? To whom can we compare the King of glory, the King of kings and the Lord of lords? For who is like our God? who left his, his throne in heaven, came down to this sin-filled world and rescued a God-hating, sin-filled humanity. Who in all of creation other, other than Jesus Christ can God the Father testify with his words, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Who of the greatest of men that we've ever known in history can God say that to? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Bring the most talented men that you know. Bring the greatest kings that we've ever heard of to rule in this world. Bring them and line them up with Jesus and there is no comparing Jesus Christ with anybody. There is a great chasm that separates the Lord, the Lord of lords from all of humanity, there is an infinite chasm. No one can compare with Jesus Christ. Bring the so-called gods of this world that the world's religion has to offer. None are worthy of his glory. None can compare it with the Lord Jesus Christ. Who among them is like our God and King who came to serve and not be served? The gods of this world the worldly religions, they, they, they present to us a God that wants to suck life out of us. And yet we have a vision or a revelation of the true God who came to serve and not to be served. Lastly, let us quickly look through the glorious doctrines, which again, I really can't get into too much detail because it's, um, we just don't have enough time. I can, we can spend a few weeks just going over the doctrines of, uh, of 
that, that's contained for us here. But I just want to quickly go through them. Now, we've, it's important that we've covered the ultimate purpose of why God has uh, chosen to conform us into the image of God and, that why, uh, and why he wants Jesus Christ to be the firstborn among many brothers. Because if you don't have God's ultimate purpose and why he created you and why he made you, then you can approach these doctrines and scriptures and make them an end in, in themselves. I've been there uh, studying the doctrines of grace, election, all these wonderful doctrines, and, I've, uh, and, and, I, and I found myself uh, just camped out studying them and, and loving them more and not loving the Lord Jesus Christ. So I just want to explain these doctrines and how they are a means to accomplish God's ultimate end, which is to conform us into the image of God and to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ by making him preeminent. We can find ourselves to be secure in God in the means in which he has given us and in the plan or the procedure whereby which he accomplishes his purpose. In verse, starting in verse 29, actually, it says that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, some have taken this word foreknew to mean as God looking down the quarters of time and looking and, and seeing those who would choose him who would, by their faith, choose to believe in, their, in, in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But um, I'd like to just uh, explain how certain words in the Bible have different meanings. Uh, there's a difference between definition and terms. For instance, if I, if I said something like, oh, that's the bomb. And in a certain part of uh, the country, people would understand that, that, that as to be cool not a literal bomb. And, uh, and so here, the way in which God or Paul uses the word foreknew, the word um, progenosco, isn't to mean that God knew ahead of time who would choose him. Although God knows ahead of time everything that will happen in all of creation. But um, let's just look at another way in which uh, God's knowledge is used concern, uh, in, in a different way rather than the defined term. For instance, in the Old Testament, you've got Amos chapter 3, verse 2, where God says that, uh, he speaks of Israel. He says that, only you have I known of all the families in the, the world. They're the only family in which God has known. Now, God here is not saying that Israel was the only one that he knew about. He had perfect omniscient knowledge of every person living in the earth at that time. But God is using that term in such a way that, that means, that, that knowledge means intimate knowledge or God's, um, you, you can actually use that term in that verse to, to mean that um, only hum, you whom I loved. Um, you can use it in that term. That's how God is using it in that verse. Or what about um, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 12 where it speaks of Eli's sons as being worthless men, and they did not know the Lord. Now, these men, the Eli's sons, were raised in Israel. They were raised in the ways of Yahweh, Jehovah. They knew who he was, but that passage isn't saying that they didn't know about him. Of course they did. That passage there is saying that they didn't know him intimately. They didn't know him as their God and Savior, their, their, their God intimately. 
Next, it says that um, those whom he foreknew. Now that we've defined uh, the term foreknowledge correctly in this context, we can move on to the next, uh, the next thing that speaks of how God accomplishes his purpose. It says that he predestined them. Now, the word predestined here, prohorizo, it's, um, it's, it's the definition, you can define that term as God determining how that which he has chosen will be accomplished. It's used six times in the New Testament. Acts 4.28, um, Corinthians, I think 1 Corinthians 2.9, I, I forget, but um, also twice here in Romans and then twice in Ephesians. And every time you look at these passages and how that word is used, it talks about God ordering the way in which things happen. The way that God works isn't contingent on anything that we do. He's sovereignly working everything out and to, to accomplish his will and his purpose. Next, those whom he predestined, he, uh, he also called. Again, we've, uh, we've already covered this part of the, what is this, this if you're into theology, you like terms or, or, or like definitions of, of things, they actually call this, the, some call this to be the golden chain of salvation. It's an unbreakable link. Those whom God foreknew, whom he predestined, whom he called, justified, and glorified. These, uh, these terms in which God gives us, they're an unbreakable chain, and they happen one after the other. First, God foreknows or foreloves or shows favor upon a people, and then he predestines the way in which he brings about their salvation. And so for those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. I see again, the calling of God, the effectual call of God produces justification. Justification here is what we mean by, or what Paul means as justification is, is being declared righteous uh, by God, whereby which our sins are imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness imputed to us, also known as double imputation. It's, again, it's not by any works or any merits that we do. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of Christ alone. It's not that we conjure up our own strength and, and work hard to earn God's favor in order that he would forgive us. No, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished sufficient work of Jesus Christ alone. You don't add anything. If I had to add something, I would, I would be lost right now. And you would also. You would have to meet God's perfect standard of righteousness. But we've already failed, right? The very first time we've sinned, we already failed of meeting God's perfect standard. But praise God that by his grace we are saved and not by our own works. Thank God that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for your sins and to die for my sins. And this morning, if you're going through some sin right now, you're struggling with some sin in your life and you can't overcome it and you feel like you just had it and, and, and sometimes you feel like you won't make it, look away from yourselves and look to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in his finished work in saving you. Look away from working out your salvation and earning 
your salvation by what you do, but rather look to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and listen to the words that he says, it is finished. It is finished. Don't touch it. His work is complete. His work is perfect. Any work that I try to add to that just taints it. A free gift of salvation. That's what I need. That's what the world needs. That's what you need. So again, if you're struggling with some certain sin this morning, rest assured, if you're a believer, you can come to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him to forgive you. If you confess, uh, if, if uh, what does uh, first, uh, first John 1 John, if you confess with your mouth, um, if you confess your sins to him, he, he will forgive you. Um, it, it doesn't say in that passage that if you, if you repent enough, if you do enough, it says that if you confess, if you confess, if you would but just confess your sins to the Lord Jesus Christ, you would be forgiven. Man, I can't believe I'm up here preaching the gospel right now. This is just amazing. This is amazing. I'm just blown away right now that God would choose someone as me who always rebelled against him, who always hated him. And on a Sunday morning, I just have to break away for a second, you know, because God is so awesome. On a Sunday morning, I would usually be drunk and, 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 and be doing something ungodly, and yet God is so gracious to allow me to preach his gospel today, an unworthy man. This is, and that, that goes the same for all of you. That goes the same for, that's the same for all of you. For all of us, even if you've grown up in the church, we, we heard the young man here testify, he grew up in the church, never had real faith. That's an amazing testimony as well, that God would work through a religious man who has been self-deceived thinking that, or, or others that have grew, grown up in the church, doing church activities, thinking that they were saved, and yet they were never really saved. And yet God, by his grace, opens up their eyes to the truth and shows them their need of a savior. That also is an amazing testimony. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What an amazing passage that we have here, 28 through 30. Speaking of what God has done. We hear so much nowadays of what we can do for God as if God needed us. God needs us to move. God needs us to, we need to mobilize or else no one's gonna get saved. If we don't put our resources together, the, the, the kingdom will not be built. My friend, Jesus Christ said that he will build his church. He will build his church and he will not fail. Jesus Christ is not a failure. The God, the the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, will build his church. And we have here a glorious passage, an amazing passage, that I believe God wants his people to just meditate upon with their hearts and think over with their hearts. Rather than looking to what we can do for God, this morning you can praise God through, his, through the reading of his scriptures and praise him for what God has done for you. We can praise this God Is your soul not at rest this morning? Again, are you troubled over a trial that you're currently treading through? Do you feel hopeless? And you maybe think that you can't go another day. As short, again, as this message was, you don't need a long message. You just need to hear preach. Uh, you, need, you just need to hear Christ preached. 
And I pray that, that this morning, in the, in the short time that I was up here, that you would be blown away and that your hearts would be captivated at the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ, at the sufficiency and the sovereign working of God in his plan and his drama of redemption. God will never leave you nor forsake you. You will one day be glorified, even though it seems like it's far off, that you won't do it, that you're struggling, that things in your life, you're going through trials, you're going through sufferings, and you think that you can't make it. You may feel that way, but God's truth still stands. And our circumstances are overarched by the sovereign love and sovereign rule of God for his people. You can sing with confidence what John Mark Arthur calls as the hymn of security. It's going to start in Romans chapter 8, verse 35 to the end. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We sang so many songs this morning pertaining to that very truth, and I was meditating on them. You know, when you sing these songs, when we sing these songs, think upon the words that we're singing. And I, 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 I can uh, guarantee you that your, your worship, your time here will, 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 will change. Rather than just singing songs, your, your hearts will think upon the truths of God as you worship him. And, and, and praise him for who he is, for what he's done for you. And so this morning, I just pray that you all that are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ would find absolute security in what he's done for you and to look away from yourself in trying to complete or accomplish or finish your salvation because God will complete the plan of salvation in your life in my life, in the life of his church. He will complete it. He said it and he will do it. Our God is a faithful God. His love is steadfast. It'll never fail. It'll never run out and it will never run dry. The God of gods and the King of kings, he's upholding you right now. He's upholding you. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ and be strengthened Look to the Lord Jesus Christ and find comfort. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ and find joy. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ and find peace for your souls. And trust in him to save you. Trust in him to get you through because it is in Christ alone. Let's pray.